You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. I'm Logan Medish, your host of High Caliber History, and we are here today in Fort Smith, Arkansas, at the United States Marshals Museum. Joining me around the table, we've got Alan from Gunbroker, Dan from Go Wild, and Dave, the curator of the U.S. Marshals Museum. Dave, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Logan. Absolutely. I think Dave just found out what our, the official title of our <laughs> podcast was. Well, that's okay, because the first day I showed up to our first filming of the podcast is when I learned I was the host of the show so you no, know it, 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 honestly i actually knew it and i'd seen it before and i still accept it <laughs> uh, so so yeah we're here at the at the u.s marshals museum and and like i said we're in fort smith but david explain to us your reader's digest version of why why are we at the marshals museum in fort smith arkansas the Marshalls Museum is in Fort Smith, Arkansas, primarily because of the history that Fort Smith has with the agency. Okay. Uh, Fort Smith is the spiritual home for the Marshall Service, even though the agency started in 1789, signed into law by President Washington, mm -hmm. and it's still doing its thing today. In most people's mental thoughts, the history of the agency uh, when people think about the marshals, they think about True Grit. They think about the Old West. They think yeah. about Hang 'em High. Sure. And a lot of that was in a heavily fictionalized version of Fort Smith. And even today, with the new Bass Reef series on Paramount, yeah, uh, that takes place around here, um, or at least the television version of it. And so we're here in Fort Smith, partially because of that mental image, but a lot because uh, the history. This is sacred ground for the agency. There are about a third of the men and women who passed away in the line of duty to the agency, to that mission of the Office of the United States Marshals. They died within uh, about 100, 150 miles west of us in wow. what's now eastern Oklahoma, into, into western Oklahoma, what was Indian Territory, what was uh, Oklahoma Territory. And so there's a, there's a lot of history there. There's probably more deputies buried within about 20 minutes of where we're sitting right now than anywhere else in the country. Gotcha. And so it really, it holds a special part, uh, a special place in the heart of the marshals, in the heart of the people who have studied them. Gotcha. So it's it, truly, it's sacred ground in and around this yep. area for the marshals for their 200 plus years of, yes. of history. So That's awesome. Dave, you mentioned a lot of the, the Western Marshals, but for a lot of us, Marshals are Raylan Givens or Sam Gerard. Can yeah. you give us a real brief version of what, what do the Marshals do? Uh, from the, the founding of the Marshals in 1789, their job was essentially to be the teeth of the federal judiciary. 
the Constitution says, okay, here's Article 3. Here's the Supreme Court. We're going to let Congress figure everything out. Very first thing the Senate does, they go off, they have a committee, they come back, they create the federal judiciary. So you've got federal courts, the districts all around the country. Each district has two offices appointed by the president and confirmed by Congress. One of those is the United States Attorney. One of those is the United States Marshal. Right now, we have 94 federal court districts in the country. There's 94 United States Marshals. There's about 3,500 deputies. And where in Washington's time, in the Old West, the deputies could just get hired, like, can you ride a horse? Can you shoot a gun? Or in some places, are you really good buddies with Steve? <laughs> All right, come on. I'll help you out. And But today, uh, and really for the last 60, 70 years, they've been civil service. Uh, any deputies that you run into today, they are legally and like educationally the equivalent of uh, FBI special agents, ATF, customs. I mean, any of those, they all go through uh, the federal law enforcement training center in Glencoe, Georgia. And so they really are the cream of the crop. I mean, it's some of the hardest training and I know other agencies will disagree, but it's some of the hardest training that you're going to see as a federal law enforcement officer. And that's really what they do. They enforce the nation's laws, Regardless of what's going on, they have the authority to enforce the laws. They have the broadest jurisdiction of any law enforcement in the country. Mm -hmm. They're not really limited to a specific area like FBI or ATF have very specific guidelines. They can only search for crimes within a particular area. But if it's an order or a piece of paper or something that comes out of a federal court, they're responsible. Are you taking a witness or a prisoner or somebody to court? Are you protecting the property? Are you, uh, the judge says, okay, we need to seize these assets. They're the ones who enforce that. We need to make sure that this person gets to here. We need to make sure that people have access to this area. Mm -hmm. uh, if, the, if there's a, a union case and the court says, this company needs to be allowed to keep their business open regardless of what this union wants, they have been called many times uh, for uh, not really union busting, but to enforce the right of companies to take their actions, or in some cases, the rights of the protesters to take their actions. And so it's, the marshals have been, whether it's uh, escorting young black girls into schools in New Orleans in 1960, if it is on the flip side of that, you go back to the 1850s enforcing the Fugitive Slave Act. Mm -hmm. And so... Some of it's not exactly what we would think of as bright, shiny history. Right. But it's a big, heavy, thick history that really does cover our country. History rarely is bright and shiny. It really rarely is. <laughs> and if it is bright and shiny, you're talking about heritage. Right. Yes. <laughs> big difference between heritage and history. Absolutely. Um, and so, of course, you, you touched on Bass Reeves briefly. You mentioned him. and You, know, you can't talk to Marshalls and, and not yep. talk about Bass Reeves. He is yeah. truly a legendary, iconic individual. Um, and, and we talked before we started filming, there are a lot of firearms in the collection that were, you know, supposedly have come down through relatives of Bass Reeves. Yep. Um, and, and there's, there's a number of great pieces in the collection, but there's one gun that you have in the collection on display in the galleries that, you know, without a shadow of a doubt belonged to Bass Reeves. So tell us yeah. a little bit about that firearm. So we have, uh, one, rev one revolver that came to us from a descendant of Bass's sister, Okay. Uh, and it's just all this history a lot that a lot of people tend to kind of gloss over. But uh, descendant of Bass's sister, he ends up becoming a 
federal judge in the Atlanta area, a gentleman named Paul Brady. And one of the things in Paul's uh, possession that he ended up giving to us was this particular Colt single action revolver and a batch. And there's, there's some different issues there that we're still trying to figure out regarding all of this. But uh, one of those being that the revolver is a 32 caliber. You wouldn't exactly think of that as a law enforcement gun, much less yeah. from the Wild West. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's also stories uh, when Bass passes away, one of his sons, there's stories that showed up in the newspaper within that week that said this son showed up, quote unquote, took all of Bass's guns and rode to Kansas. So we don't even know if the other ones are still out there, but uh, to your question about the, the comment about us having other guns that were donated to us under the guise of being right. Bass's guns, uh, there was an individual in 2014 gave us half a dozen guns and a pocket watch claiming that they belonged to Uncle Bass. And for many years, we thought they were true. But the more research that we have been doing into the history of Bass Reeves and into his family tree, mm-hmm. we ended up determining that this was not the case. So uh, about a year ago, we had to make the hard decision to say these weren't them. And so we've acknowledged as such uh, on a couple of different things that the museum does. Uh, But we ended up in some of those guns are out on exhibit. They're just not out on exhibit as Bass Reeves guns. Right. They're out on exhibit as amazing uh, examples of guns from that period. Sure. But, uh, we just had to do what a responsible museum has to do. Right. And we had to make a hard decision. He gave us the guns outright. We still had them in our possession Mm -hmm. and we're still using them to tell the story of the marshals, maybe not in the way that he wanted, Mm -hmm. but if it would be worse, if we were out there proclaiming they were Bass Reeves guns and then someone comes up and says, Hey, you guys got, you guys were taken because he's not, this guy right so yeah it's museum provenance is always a tricky yeah, thing it you is. know and, and and especially when you're dealing with provenance involving so-called family you sure. know ties yeah. and relations that makes yeah. everything and, all the more complicated and I, and I know this is one of the tricky things within the auction business is uh, yeah. like rule number one with guns don't buy the story yeah. Yeah. buy the gun <laughs> yeah so, dave can you tell us a real brief history of who marshall reeves was i mean obviously he's known as a legendary historic lawman figure we've seen him in a couple fictional rep- Representations that have probably not done him justice. So, really, who was Marshall Reeves? Uh, Bass Reeves, uh, really, we we consider him to be the most prolific law enforcement agent, their law enforcement officer that the country has ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, born into slavery, uh, sometime between 1838, 1842, somewhere in that range, uh, probably up here, just about 20 miles northeast of where we're standing, uh, up here in Arkansas. Uh, the Reeves family had moved there from Tennessee. Later on, uh, they moved down to Sherman, Texas, uh, just south of the Red River. And Bass spends his time up to the Civil War down there. There are a few different stories as to what happened at that point. But being an enslaved black person in America at that time, there's not a whole lot of records. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so some of this is family story. Some of these family stories have been proven completely false. Some of them have been proven true, and it's just trying to go through and find this. Uh, but at some point during the war, or right before, Bass escapes from his servitude, gets up into what's now eastern Oklahoma, and most accepted stories are that he was living in eastern Oklahoma with one of a number of the different tribes that were moved out as the, what we could now call the five tribes, 
uh, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole in the uh, creek. Uh, he was with one of those tribes or more. And then by the end of the war, he goes back down to Texas, finds the woman who ends up being his wife, Jenny. They have several kids in Texas. They move to Fort Smith. And within about 10 years after moving into Fort Smith, he gets involved as a posse member. And then in 1882, he starts working as a deputy United States Marshal here in the court in Fort Smith. And over that time frame, from about when he first gets involved as a posse man in 76 or so, up until 1910, he, I'm sorry, 1907, he's working is there either as posse or a deputy with the exception of a couple of years in the middle of all of this in the 1880s when he's tried for the murder of a camp cook and which ends up getting thrown out but this is two years he's off the road but he is one of the busiest people he's one of the first people that i've seen as a historian who really understood this is during a time frame in which deputies were not paid per month they were not paid per day they were paid by uh, the number of people they brought in they were paid by the amount of writs and papers from the court that they distributed subpoenas and warrants and things like that uh, they were paid for like every little bit that they did they got paid for mileage they got they were allowed to have a posse member they were paid daily for sustenance for them if they had uh, prisoners that they were bringing back they were paid per prisoner they were paid mileage per prisoner they were paid per diem they were i mean just all of this that they were getting money for he figured out this is a guy who could not read or write. He would go out with a stack of warrants that he would have to have at least an idea of what the warrant said. He would have to know, okay, this guy is out here. This guy's out here. I would imagine the posse, whoever he took out with them, was able to read, was literate, right. and was able to help him out in some extent there. But he would go out, and instead of just going out a day or so, grab a guy and come back, he would go and take a big long loop, four, five, six hundred miles around through eastern, what's now eastern Oklahoma, and grab half a dozen or a dozen guys, issue writs and subpoenas, and then come back. And in today's terms, he was making seventy, eighty, ninety thousand $90,000 a year. Wow. When most people, at that time we're not making anywhere near as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that kind of led to some different issues here in the Fort Smith area, I think, uh, which we really want to try and get some more work to research. But, uh, he spent most, spent most of his life, especially as a free man doing this job in the one area where he, or the country where he could do this job. Mm -hmm. He was arresting white men, black men, uh, Indians from a variety of different tribal nations, and he was doing all of this work while being a former enslaved person in the United States. And just simply the amount of work that he did and what he was able to do while being in that state, it just really just boggles the mind. Yeah. And that the fact that he didn't have to shoot hardly anybody. Well, that was my question was if you didn't get paid for a dead prisoner, right? You only got paid if they were alive. Right. So he had to approach law enforcement, frankly, from a more modern standpoint than your typical right. frontier sheriff or you right. know, deputy might can't, have to. Can't do right. the shoot first, ask questions later right. mindset or, with that. Yeah. dead or alive. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, yeah. That's, and that's one of those things like, yeah, like there, there, you would get some money if there was a wanted poster for somebody that was $200 reward for John Smith. 
dead or alive. Okay, okay, great, fine. You, you can get that still. Mm-hmm. But you're still going to be trying to go out. And it's like you get that John Smith. If he's 100 miles out there, that might be worth 20, 30, 40 bucks just to get him back. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you're it's really, it's just you leaving the body out there and having to pay for the burial, you're going to be a losing proposition. And mm-hmm. so during the course of his life, he's credited with shooting about shooting and killing about 14 people, including William Leach, his camp cook, which in an accident, uh, there were, uh, a number of other cases that were like, we're, I'm as a historian trying to go through and verify some of these and try to find what we can. Some of these, we know, okay, there's, 14 out there we're still not exactly sure what all the 14 are and the ones that we do know that are on the list we might know a couple of names these two guys we don't know where that's from Mm -hmm. so yeah it's just it's just knowing that he he was good with a gun just simply the fact that he did all this stuff but was never well the fact he survived the fact he was survived yeah and there's the jury still out as to whether or not he was ever actually even shot interesting so Hmm. So, uh, you know, obviously there's a, a huge storied history for the Marshalls even before we get to the 20th century. But, oh, once, yeah. but once we get into the 20th century, uh, the idea of what most people think of with the Marshall you know, kind of changes, you know. Um, and, and one of the pieces that we have here on, on the table here from the collection, I, I think, can kind of help speak to that. We've got this, this tear gas gun yeah. here. Um, so tell us a little bit about this artifact. Uh, this tear gas gun is one of two that we have here in the collection. It's on loan to us. Anything, um, we've got about 2,000 objects in the collection, about a third of that on loan to us from the Marshal Service. We are not part of the Marshal Service. We are not a federal agency, which has actually required me at one point to send back an a, a fully automatic, uh, well, Chinese AK. Oh. Back. It was a Type 56. I had to send this back to the agency you because you government. I I didn't want to go to prison. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm right there with you. So uh, this particular uh, gun, though, this is one of a couple hundred tear gas guns that were at Oxford, Mississippi, uh, during the Battle of Oxford at Old Miss when the school uh, refused to uh, allow a young black man who's an Air Force veteran to enroll. And so federal court order said that he was supposed to allow this to happen. Uh, President Kennedy and the U.S. Attorney General Bobby Kennedy, they decided let's use the marshals. Whereas Eisenhower had several years previously for a similar kind of a situation at Little Rock, Mm -hmm. had chosen to use the military. Uh, They decided to use the marshals in this particular case, just looking at the nature of the the situation. And so during the course of the evening, you have about 250 men – uh, deputies, some uh, Bureau of Prisons employees, uh, some Border Patrol were standing around in suits and ties in grenade vests wow. carrying, carrying these. And they all had their 38s on their hips mm-hmm. or tucked up in the shoulder, but uh, they never drew those. They ran out of tear gas three times that night. Wow. And this was facing off against a mob that numbered more than 3,000 people. Mm. That mob was throwing rocks and bricks and Coke bottles. Uh, they were taking pot shots at them with shotguns and 22s. There was a uh, deputy U.S. marshal who was there that night who, by the medical accounts and the paperwork that came along with a file that we have from him, he died three times that night because mm. he was shot in the neck, 22 round traveled down into his chest. Oof. 
and he was in the hospital for a good while. We've got, uh, he's got signed cards from JFK and RFK that we have out on exhibit. We've got a picture of him with Bobby Kennedy. It's also out on exhibit, but, uh, just the fact that these guys went and they did that job and they were being all this stuff thrown at them and they were being shot at and not once did they pull their sidearms. Right. Yeah, they they chose the less lethal option, or, yeah. the, or really tear gas, the, a non-lethal the option non-lethal. And in the face of yeah. potential death. And, I mean, that, really, it was that time frame during the 60s into the 70s is when the Marshal Service really changed from having a uh, the situation that they had, what I think of as the bad old days that you alluded to, the mm-hmm. 1920s, 30s, 40s. Yeah. You've got FBI showing up, uh, Treasury Department's prohibition Starts to turn into ATF. Yeah, you get other agencies start to get created and balloon up, and as they start taking over different functions, the Marshal Service kind of starts pulling back, and these other agencies start getting angry anytime the Marshals try to get into them. So mm-hmm. during that time frame, the Marshals really are what looks to be kind of a um, just kind of a um, really exciting version of being a uh, bailiff. I mean, they were courts. Yeah, they were court security at that. Yeah, point. and and that's that's kind of what a lot of people thought about them, and they went to the point of trying to get deputies into trouble if a deputy even dared try to arrest somebody mm-hmm. even though outside of the region that we're in where most of the deaths are tied to indian territory and oklahoma territory you're looking at really everything from the ozarks over into the appalachians and most of the deaths like if you went from this part of the world the next most dangerous area would be in the back hills where people are making moonshine and deputies going up in with treasury officers, the treasury officers, the revenuers weren't able to arrest people. They had no arrest authority, but they were, it's kind of like looking at ATF that you've got, you've, you've got uh, enforcement and you've got industry operations, right? It's like industry operations. They're the ones that will show up at the clipboard. Mm-hmm. Enforcement's the ones that show up the badge and the guns. And so, with revenue would show up knowing what the law was marshals would show up with them mm-hmm. with the badge and the guns knowing that okay you point out whether they're breaking the law and i'll arrest them and so when you hear stuff like uh uh tennessee's wonderful song rocky top there's the whole line about there about the once the two men go up on rocky top looking for a moonshine still they they never came back down guess they never will they're talking about a deputy and a revenue officer mm-hmm. yeah it's fascinating stuff. Uh, it's it's a, a an incredibly interesting period in in the Marshals. Well, it's an interesting period in in American history, yeah. you know, yeah. and and by extension, an interesting period of the Marshals' history. Um, we we've got some, uh, an interesting combination of artifacts sitting here on the yeah. table. We've we've got a Smith and Wesson revolver that's sitting in a baseball <laughs> glove next to a baseball card for a player that I've never heard of. So, uh, <laughs> what what yeah. is going on? How are these three things related? So uh, there's a guy named Chuck Goggin. Uh, he was a baseball player from Tennessee, and. As he grew up, he just wanted to play ball, play any position you gave to him, just as long as he was able to be on the field, help the club. And like whether it was like in uh, just regular uh, little leagues, whether it was high school, whether just whatever. Didn't it, matter. As long as he matter. could play. He just wanted to get on the field and play, and yeah. he wanted to help the team. So he ends up uh, finally getting into the minor leagues just and is just called up for the majors in time for Vietnam. Oh, geez. So uh, there's – and there's like one of the 
famous things about World War II in the United States is people like Ted Williams. Yeah. You've got uh, world-famous players who also become war heroes. And mm -hmm. There's a reason why we don't have any of that from Vietnam is because all of the professional ball clubs would send their players off to get signed up for the National Guard. So Chuck is injured when his club goes off to the National Guard. He comes back about a month later, gets a letter that says, you need to show back up and get your physical done again. He shows back up and it, that physical said, okay, you're ready to go. And they sign him up for active duty, which he decides he doesn't want to just do anything halfway. He's not going to get going to get drafted. He signs up for the Marines, goes off to Vietnam as a combat Marine, uh, serves uh, very honorably, gets, uh, if I remember correctly, a couple of bronze stars, gets a couple of purple hearts. And uh, while he's there, they offer him, it's like, we want to promote you to sergeant. Just you've been doing a great job. And said, well, no, because if you do that, I'll have to stay in the Marine Corps another year. I'm supposed to be showing up at spring training. And said, okay, fine. So he goes, he refuses that, shows up back into spring training, plays a full career. And again, follows just the same mindset, just wants to do everything he can to help the team. When he finally retires after being a player and a manager, his uh, people he knows in Tennessee, they go, hey, We've, there's this job that we think he might be good for, and they put they nominate him to the president to be the new U.S. Marshal for the Middle District of Tennessee, and he gets accepted and mm. confirmed by Congress. And this is the Smith that he carried as a uh, sidearm while he was a U.S. Marshal. Very cool. And so he carried this, but what we ended up with here at the Marshals Museum, not only did we get that revolver, this is one of his mitts nice. that we received. And it's a well-worn glove. Well-worn glove. Goggin, 13, oh, yeah. right there. Yep. Very cool. And then beyond that, we also have one of his baseball cards. This is when he played infield Atlanta Braves. <laughs> That's very cool. And he just looks just, like a lawman in oh, that yeah. picture, too, I mean, you just, know? Yeah, he's just really excited. He started out with uh, 64 playing for Salisbury and then uh, one of the Pittsburgh clubs. And then uh, 66 and 67 in military service. Wow. Came back out and played until this was in 73. And I think he played for another year or two before uh, putting the glove down and taking up the manager's cap. That's really cool. I mean, if you look at baseball players through history, I mean, Nolan Ryan looks like he should have been a U.S. Marshal. <laughs> but, I mean, th th this guy's the real deal. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's just amazing when, when you look at this agency and you see the type of people who do this job, they're this typically the, the people today who are serving it. They're some of the best and brightest. They want to do what's well for the team. They yeah. want to help. They want to try to make sure that everything happens. The guys who are standing side by side at Old Miss, they may not have wanted to be there. They were still there. They t there's, in the words of Al Butler, the guy who was in charge on the, on the steps that night, you put on the badge, you do the job. Sure. And I'm sure that there were people who were on those steps who were segregationists, didn't believe that this young man had the right to go to Ole Miss. But they had a job But they to had do. a job to do, and they swore that oath, and yep. they were going to defend that oath. Yep. So, Alan, what kind of, uh, real quick, can you tell us what kind of Marshalls-related stuff we might find on Gunbroker? Sure. Well, you know, Winchester, of course, famous for their commemorative editions. Mm -hmm. uh, I took a look uh, a little while ago, and there are a number of 1892 commemoratives, U.S. Marshal Service, their 16-inch carbines, really beautifully engraved guns, 
around twenty five hundred dollars, which for okay. you know Winchester commemorative is is pretty standard price. But yeah. they are really beautiful. So if you want a, a keepsake or a collectible that you know honors one of our, our best law enforcement agencies, there's there's plenty of options out there. Yeah. Another option is to uh, get yourself a commemorative brick here at the U.S. Marshals Museum. That's one of the the fundraising opportunities yep. they have here. So you can you can you can honor the memory of someone both ways. You can get a commemorative Winchester. Yeah. You can have a brick put yeah. out here at the museum. Um, and certainly, we recommend you come visit the museum. One hundred percent. Yep. Uh, they are. Uh, what are your hours? Your nine to five. Nine uh, to five. Seven days a week. We are open 362 days a year. The only days of the year we're going to be closed are on Thanksgiving Day, Christmas Day, and New Year's Day. So there you we're go. We're open otherwise. No uh, excuses not yeah. to get here. And when in <laughs> doubt, you can always hit our webpage, hit our Facebook. And, I mean, it's just anything that you – if you've got a question about something, we're more than happy to answer. If you think you're related to a deputy, if you think you've got a neat piece that might have some Marshall's history. Right. We're more than happy to do this. I've been dealing with guns and museums for 20 years, and I I love helping people find a home for their guns. Awesome. Well, guys, thanks for sitting around the table. Dave, thanks for joining us on the show. And, thanks and for having me. Telling us some awesome Marshall's history and some neat pieces. And thanks to all of you who've tuned in to this episode. Uh, we really appreciate you being here. Make sure you're subs you are subscribed on your favorite platform. Leave us some reviews, some comments, some likes. It's all a tremendous help. We don't get to do this without you. So thanks for joining us. And we will see you right here next week on the next episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. <laughs> <laughs>